Hello, and thank you for downloading the Trap One podcast. This is Jason in New York. I come to you from the far side of a post-apocalyptic hellscape. One of the most evil beings in creation has taken control of our worldwide communication network and has used it to enforce the belief that every single person is correct no matter what they say or do or think. Perspective has been destroyed. The distinction between right and wrong and good and evil has been shattered. It is an upside-down world in which violence and hatred breaks out across borders, inside countries, across city streets. This is clearly the point of no return. But enough about Twitter and Elon Musk (laughs) and the reinstatement of conspiracy theorist Alex Jones to the Twitter platform. We are talking instead about the plot of The Giggle, the third and final year 2023 RTD special starring David Tennant and Donna Noble, which has absolutely nothing at all to do with the scenario that I just outlined. Joining me to discuss this episode that has no topical relevance whatsoever are my following three friends. Keith in Carlisle. UK Jason. And Mark also in Carlisle. This was an episode that had tremendous anticipation building up to it, up to the point that my 13-year-old daughter actually watched the episode with me and was riveted and even joined me on Doctor Who Literature last week to discuss So this was an episode that we were all looking forward to, and RTD went so far as to say you must avoid spoilers if you do not see the episode live, because there are momentous things that are going to happen. I had Cy Hart, who's another one of our Trap One co-hosts, and he was on Doctor Who Literature last week, and I just asked him a couple of days before the giggle aired, what are your predictions for what's going to happen? So he gave his predictions and I gave mine. His were pretty much entirely correct, and mine were pretty much entirely incorrect. But going around the table and joining our panel, starting with Keith, before the giggle aired, what did you think was going to happen in it? I thought this toy maker was going to be back. And that's pretty much it. (laughs) I've been really good at avoiding, avoiding spoilers, and then literally, on the day it was broadcast... I happened to glance at something on my phone, which gave away almost the entire plot. So at the very last minute, I fell at the last hurdle. Did you have any predictions? Were there any things that you wanted to see? Were there any things that you were hoping would happen or would not happen? I was kind of thinking that the toy maker had somehow been involved in the creation of the 14th Doctor. I think from the moment his clothes changed with his regeneration I kind of assumed he was some sort of toy maker creation and was quite glad to find out that he wasn't but I thought that was I kind of thought that would be the way it would go I think you were half right as the case may be but I kind of assumed that shooty was actually the doctor and this was just some sort of strange avatar and when he turned up at the end it would be be to correct what had gone wrong rather than as a continuation of the actual story Instead, it turns out that it's Shooty's Doctor, who is, in essence, a creation of the toy maker with an asterisk. But Jason, UK Jason, did you have any predictions or hopes going into this? 
Well, I, I know kind of like the the, the basic um, like outline of, of the plot. I'm in a Doctor Who like kind of like Discord group, and uh, there's quite a few connected people in there. So some spoilers were discussed, and I know that it was gaining traction online on a lot of Doctor Who groups and also like uh, Twitter that the by generation rumor was going round. So that had obviously leaked somewhere. So that turned out to be like kind of like. Obviously, you know, true by the episode. But um, the only kind of like expectations I was kind of hoping going into it uh, was that hopefully we might have actually get a kind of actual anniversary episode. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. I've absolutely loved each one of these specials. But to kind of like label them, it's the only criticism I have, to kind of like label them as a 60th anniversary series of specials is kind of like doing the kind of anniversary a little bit of a disservice i think yeah we're celebrating the show by bringing david tennant back and bringing obviously Catherine tate back and like other various elements of russell t davis's era but we're kind of like only really celebrating russell t davis's era and we're not celebrating any other like aspects of um, the show. It was great to have that little snippet of um, the colorized footage from Celestial Toymaker with Michael Goff and William Hartnell in there, but that was about it. I was hoping, beyond hope, that we might get a cameo from Matt Smith or from Peter Capaldi, even if it was just like a little, you know, two minute piece and not a full day of the Doctor thing. But um, besides that, I absolutely, you know, really did enjoy the episode and it had a couple of. Um, surprises in there that I wasn't quite, um, you know, expecting. I should point out that knowing that my daughter was on the couch, I did what every Doctor Who fan dad has done at one point in their lives, is I broke out my Lost in Time DVD, and 30 minutes before the giggle aired, I decided to break out episode four of The Celestial Toymaker. And she was promptly taken into care, was she? <laughs> I think she wanted to have me taken into care after that. <laughs> as soon as it was resol- as soon as it was over, her response was, "Well, that was interesting." And I'm like, "It was a little juvenile." And she went, "That's one way of putting it." Is interesting a euphemism for boring? No, not boring. Just badly Did done. You- the, the plot was stilted. The acting performances were stilted and if you are a child of the year 2010 who does not have a lot of experience in black and white television the visual limitations of 1966 are going to strike you as comical will you inflict the terror of the upcoming animation on her which is genuinely creepy oh god i wouldn't inflict that animation on myself i'm gonna buy the dvd but i might just stick to the uh tell us not reconstructions on that one i don't know if i can sit through 100 minutes of that See, I, I was somewhat like Keith with this one, where I didn't know that much going in. I, I looked, I wasn't spoiled at all. So all I knew was that the the toy maker was coming back, and and having seen the trailer, I knew that Kate Stewart and Unit were in there, and I assumed it was the regeneration story. And I, and I think the next time, kind of trailer from Wild Blue Yonder, kind of uh, heavily insinuated it was the the regeneration story. I probably I think of it. I do think there's more there maybe than what you were saying, Jason, in terms of it being an anniversary. I kind of felt like you had the toy maker back from the 60s, unit back from the 70s, and Mel back from the 80s. So that was kind of like elements of the, the classic series that, that were kind of woven into it. 
Um, but yeah, like Keith, I, I'd assumed that the Doctor changing and his clothes changing at the end of Power of the Doctor was something that had been done to him rather than something his subconscious had, had brought up, like the Twelfth Doctor's face being a you know sort of a reminder to to save individual people that you know the, the Doctor's brought this face back to be reunited with Donna and. Uh, obviously not to jump to the end, but you know, with, with what happens there. So I was surprised in that sense um, that it it wasn't part of the toy maker's plan. But there is a line I just I just watched this just before we started recording, where the toy maker says, "I made a jigsaw of your past." Yeah, yeah. and it really I didn't notice it so much on the first watch. On the second watch, it really stuck out to me as as to what did he mean? Is it a reference to the timeless child? That's my pet theory. My pet theory is that the whole timeless child thing has to do with the toy maker, and it's just a way of changing history. But that's because I wasn't crazy about the timeless child revelation. Number one, it's a line that you could use to interpret however you want and excuse any part of the new series that you don't like. Number two, it's a spoiler for something that's going to happen during Shooty Gatwa's first season, and we'll know a definitive answer by a year from now. One of those two things. For my next question, I will proudly admit to being a dumb, stupid American. The opening, I was, this episode aired on Saturday. I was Saturday years old when I learned that television was invented by John Logie Baird and that the first character ever broadcast on television was a ventriloquist dummy called Stooky Bill. This was completely alien to me, and I actually had to go to Wikipedia and look it up. I expect that you guys actually knew what this was as it was happening, as opposed to myself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I've been lucky enough, because it's, it's literally about 40 miles up the road from me, at Bradford is the National Media Museum, where they actually have one of the original Stooky Bills there in the actual um, television uh, museum segment, and one of the very early kind of like contraptions that um, John Logie Baird like, used um, to create the first television images so um i was aware of that like um obviously years ago um because um 10 years ago um through a friend of mine who actually works at the national media museum um part of my doctor who inspired artwork was on display in a uh, doctor who like um um celebration exhibition which was called doctor who and me where people like donated stuff either artwork they've created like associated with the show or inspired by the show or like you know bits of their collections like you know old toys and and props and stuff so um yeah so stooky bill uh lives effectively up the road from me <laughs> about 40 miles yeah i think i think especially the john logie baird inventing tv is is a kind of a thing you learn quite early on here in school. Stooky Bill thing's probably a little bit more obscure. I'd, I'd heard of it, but I didn't know that much about it. But I did for a few seconds think that John Logie Baird was being played by Mark Gatiss uh, when he first appeared on the screen. He kind of, uh, I thought he looked and sounded like, you know, kind of maybe one of his League of Gentlemen characters. Well, it's the same actor playing John Logie Baird as who played him in the um, ITV drama. Um, which is based on the name of a suddenly has escaped me. Um, is it Noel Gordon? Yeah, Noel yeah. Gordon, the Crossroads actress, because she was one of the first um, actors to actually be broadcast uh, after the trials with the ventriloquist dummies. 
Um, so she was one of the um, first actual human images to like be broadcast on, on TV. So um, obviously the Noel Gordon um, ITV drama is now part of the Doctor Who universe. So they have all crossroads as well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I knew about it, but I assumed it was in Scotland, not Bristol. So that was new. See, here in the States, we're taught that American inventor Philo Farnsworth developed television. And that's true Different with an system, asterisk. He came a couple of years later and designed the cathode ray tube. But John Logie Baird was new information for me sitting here in 2023. I actually thought he would, because uh, they made quite a big thing of his casting um, and the announcement of it when you know they were doing the announcements of, of like, who was going to be in the specials. I actually thought John Logie Baird was actually going to be like kind of like the celebrity historical and, you know, a part of like a big bit more of the episode than what he actually turned out to be. But um, so um, obviously he's just there at the beginning and he's, he's there at the end. I thought it was the bloke from Deep Space Nine who played the, um, the shape changer. So it shows how wrong I was. I believe he's no longer with us. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, at the end, something else I noticed on the second watch is um, as the, as you see the, the shop or the, the the street where where John Logie Baird and his assistant are working. There's a, a car goes down the road and the number plate is is BF eight four five nine. And I thought, oh, I bet they're like big Finnish uh, story numbers that that feature the toy maker, um, but they're not. <laughs> I just, you I actually looked that up, did you? <laughs> I did. Yeah. That's <laughs> like the uh, the number plates in uh, MCU films where they're all related to like certain appearances of certain characters. Ah right. You ever like look for Easter eggs like that? I thought I thought it spotted something uh, there, but uh, it's just a, just a complete coincidence. The number plate starts with BF. <laughs> I was very disquieted from that moment when I was very tiny. I used to have this mad aunt who had this house, which was several houses knocked together, and it was literally staircases would lead nowhere. It was the oddest place in the world. And to go to the bathroom, you had to go through the sitting room, and in every chair in this sitting room was a ventriloquist dummy. So you'd go to the loo, you'd have to brave going past these monstrosities in a chair. You just knew their heads were turning as you went past them. You'd go into the bathroom, and then you knew you'd have to come out again, knowing they were there waiting for you. And one day, my sister, very kindly, changed their position slightly while I was in the bathroom. So when I come out, they'd all moved. <laughs> From that day onwards, I have had a fear of puppets. So you can imagine that this episode was slightly more creepy for me than for probably the average viewer. So <laughs> from that moment onwards, I knew this was going to be a tricky one for me. Yes. I bet you love the scene in the God Complex where they're all in the uh, the, the restaurant. Yeah, that was, that was fairly appalling, <laughs> yeah, but seeing one actually on fire was truly horrible. So yeah. <laughs> that was probably the worst bit for me. It's a very Moffat-like image, though, isn't it? The the Stooky Bell like in every single TV screen and every screen like around. I thought that was very very clever. It's like Neil Armstrong's foot, isn't it? See, I thought it was Sapphire and Steel, where the the thing of the photographs trapped in every photograph, and this oh, image yeah. is trapped in every screen. So, I wonder if that was an homage, like homaging a bank with a sun-off shotgun. Yeah, those scenes in the Toy Makers realm, though, with First of all, with with John Logie Baird's assistant, who'd been turned into a, a, a puppet, and then Stooky Sue and the Babbies. 
they were properly properly creepy i think that's that's great like doctor who doing its job scaring kids and i wanted i'd assumed that stooky sue was uh cgi creation as well but then watching uh unleashed it is it is probably with like five people in in the black costumes have been painted out digitally uh but i love the amount of practical stuff that they're still doing where you'd you'd assume it was cgi and then you know so much of it is is still real no, it's worse. Knowing they are real puppets is much worse than thinking they're CGI puppets. Knowing that they're actually out there somewhere is much worse than just believing they're on a computer. It does show that, obviously, Doctor Who can be really, like you say, behind the sofa stuff. Because uh, we're watching, obviously, me, my partner, my 13-year-old, and even he, he was watching. And he doesn't. he's not really been the biggest Doctor Who fan, but he's watched these free specials uh, with us. And even when um, the the doll started walking out of the shadows. He went, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and suddenly, like, his phone up and started, like, looking at stuff on his phone. And, done. and then every so often, he was like, that. Is, it, is it off yet? Because he really doesn't like uh, creepy dolls and stuff like that. And you collect action figures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you saving up for his therapy? No, he can afford that himself. Like, <laughs> when he's oh, another thing i was thinking about was you know the whole best of three thing where it says that the the first doctor defeated the toy maker in the celestial toy maker but in that story isn't that his second visit to the toy maker's realm hadn't he been there once before he's met him before yeah maybe as but does it not maybe it doesn't say that they played a game maybe he just escaped that time then it was dramatized in the Gary Russell novel, Divided Loyalties, from the BBC books Past Doctor Adventure, or PDA series. It was a fifth Doctor novel with Adric and Tegan and Nyssa. And there was a lengthy flashback sequence in the middle of the book where the first Doctor, who's still a student at the Academy, and his nine best friends almost all of whom grew up to be renegade Time Lords that we later meet in the actual televised series, all wind up stealing a TARDIS and going off on a joy joyride and being trapped by the Celestial Toymaker. And one of them meets a dreadful fate, and everybody else escapes. When the Doctor starts telling Donna that when he was young and foolish, he was trapped by the Toymaker, knowing that Russell and Gary are close, and that Gary, in fact, has done the novelization for the Star Beast, I thought for sure we were about to get a summary of Divided Loyalties canonized for television. But unfortunately, that peters out and ends up just being, I think, a reference to the original televised story. from. Unless that's the jigsaw he's made of his past. He's recorrected all the novels and the audio adventures, so... <laughs> so let's talk about the toy maker then. We get thrown into it with Neil Patrick Harris in the very first scene. I've been following Neil Patrick Harris's career since literally 1989 when he was a teen actor on an American sitcom, Doogie Howser, MD, which I watched on its original airing. Uh, so he has had, you know, a career that is now in its fifth decade, going back to the 80s. And there's really never been a time when he has not been prominent. He's a terrific catch for Russell T. Davies. They have worked together before when... Russell got HBO money for It's a Sin. I think the stipulation was he had to have one American actor 
in a major role in one of the five episodes. So Neil Patrick Harris put on a British accent and appeared in the first episode of that. Now, of course, uh, Neil Patrick Harris is trying on a range of accents. He does German and French and American all in this episode. But he's right there in, in the cold open. And what did you all think of his performance as the toy maker? And bearing in mind that, according to Russell T. Davies, Neil Patrick Harris had never heard of Doctor Who prior to being cast in it. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. I thought right right from the off, he's got so much screen presence and charisma. And I think, you know, as, as the main villain, you know, to go toe to toe with with David Tennant and everything, he kind of needed to to have that that amount of presence and everything. And uh, yeah, I thought, I mean, as soon as he started with the really over the top German accent in the shop, I was. Uh, kind of uh giggling i suppose uh <laughs> away with that i thought it was uh i thought it was hilarious yeah but but in by turn sinister when uh when he needed to be as well yeah there's that moment isn't it where his accent drops and he kind of like says that racist comment about the john logie baird's assistant who's coming to buy stooky bill and it's uh, kind of like you know it's kind of like the facade falls there and it, it's very brilliantly played uh, between the two of them, but yeah, I, I, obviously Neil Patrick Harris and um, you know Doogie Howser, MD, actually used to be in the old Doctor Who slot during the Sylvester McCoy years. Um, I think he actually uh, once Doctor Who was then finished in '89, it then permanently took over. So he was on that um, opposition um, Coronation Street on BBC One over here. So I, I know him from that and uh, How I Met Your Mother, and then uh, he's brilliant uh, cameos in Harold and Kumar movies. Uh, but he's a fantastic actor, he really is. And, and like you say, he played that brilliant role, didn't he, of, of one of the first um, you know, people to get HIV uh, in It's a Sin um, and be involved with somebody. Uh, and he was just... He, he's he's very good. He was kind of like... Because we can make the comparisons with, the, obviously, that the, the singing and dance routine with the Spice Girls, um, where he's in the Unit HQ, singing Spice Up Your Life. Um, and you can compare that to, obviously, the Scissor Sister scene with John Sims' master. And I saw a very good um, comment, I think, on, on Twitter. Somebody had said, like, the difference in, in between having a serious Northern actor trying to camp it up and an actual Broadway star who's a very good actor singing and dancing it's like chalk and cheese and it really was because i never quite liked the whole john sim master doing the scissor sisters thing and in last of the time lords but here it's a it's a brilliant sequence and uh he's absolutely fantastic he says in doctor who unleashed that he, ca- he can't sing and dance and he's like he's doing himself a disservice there i wasn't sure at first until he did the bit about it being real here and this was like a hardening of the eyes there. And I thought, ah, no, we're all right now. But just, just at the very beginning with the accent, I thought, oh, dear, I think we might be in trouble here. But then, uh, no, that moment onwards, I thought, no, you're fine. And that dance routine, I just thought, was fabulous. It was just so camping, yet horrible at the same time. I mean, the bit where she, uh, Kate hits the wall is spectacular. It was like, that must have broken her arm in real life. So it was like, no, that was excellent. And the, the two soldiers, like, being turned to balls. And then there was no sort of, like, if I know, but they're just dead. I mean, that was um, wonderful. And the homage to American beauty. Yeah. So we alluded earlier in the introduction to the social messaging in this episode. I will point out 
peripherally that certain people online were upset that the toy maker made a racist comment to John Logie Baird's South Asian assistant. And I guess it really stinks to see yourself portrayed accurately on television. So I guess that's why those folks were upset. Wait, the bad guy can't be racist. I'm racist, I imagine this, uh, these people were saying. Uh, but more than that, you have uh, the whole notion of um, anti-vaxxers and people who will do the opposite of what you need to do to get through the COVID pandemic. And that was not so much subtext as literal text, where the American TV news anchor who shows up in all the RTD season finales rips off her uh, armband on the air and says, I'm anti whatever the thing was called. So Darren Mooney from the 250 podcast did a very good long form essay on his blog, breaking down the political undertones in this episode. This was presented, of course, as farce, which is what RTD does best. But if you slow it down and think about it, this was actually a pretty meaningful thing for the episode to do in its first 25 minutes. And at the same time, the vehicle by which the toy maker is able to spread his message across the world is basically the plot of the war machines. I mean, Doctor Who was doing this again in 1966, the worldwide computer network that takes over everybody's brains. So that's another uh, stealth continuity reference. How did you all take to the political messaging part of this episode the, for the first act? Yeah, I think uh, this this was all written and filmed over a year ago. And where you've got the scene with the, I think, presumably the British Prime Minister saying, you know, why should I care about you or do anything to you? And Donna gets the great line, well, well, that's no different. But I think it's got even added resonance now because in this country we've got um, there's a big inquiry into the the government's um, COVID, uh, what they what they did during COVID, basically. And uh, there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of it. I think we had heard before uh, or was rumoured, but we now know that the the then Prime Minister and the then Chancellor of the Exchequer were saying things like, "Let the bodies pile high in their thousands." And uh, the chancellor did an eat out to help out scheme where uh, I think it was like, I can't remember, was it free meals or meals for a tenner or something like that? Two for one, something Um, like that. Which is now pretty. Yeah, it was to get people going back out to restaurants. So to support the the hospitality industry. (laughs) Uh, They wanted to get everybody back out into restaurants, which fueled this enormous second wave of COVID and, and killed tens of thousands more people. Uh, and was against the advice of the, the the government scientific advisors and all that kind of stuff. So, I think uh, that in particular, probably you know, watching the coverage of the COVID inquiry at the same time, particularly rang true for me as well as, like you say, the anti-vax stuff and the the uh, you know the fact that the sort of online hate and uh, anger and arguments has now spilled over into people doing that just on the streets in <laughs> in real life. Yeah, it was very fortuitous, wasn't it, for it to go out and be broadcast in the same week that, you know, Boris Johnson and Rishi Shunak were actually giving evidence to the COVID inquiry and trying to, like, uh, you know, paper over all their excuses for, like, you know, what they'd actually said and saying, oh, well, I can't really remember saying that. And it was, like, literally there in a WhatsApp message, you know. Mm. Um, I thought Russell brilliantly, like he does, uh, he's very, like, it's like bold, swift, like, kind of, like, uh, gestures 
and it's like just simple lines of dialogue, and it's summed up by that opening scene, isn't it? With the, the with the car and the guy who comes out in the street and says, "Well, it's my road. I paid for this road. My taxi's paid for this road, but everybody else thinks they're right, but I'm right." And it's like that is online discourse mm. summed up absolutely brilliantly because you know the internet is a brilliant invention. Absolutely brilliant. But one thing that it has done probably in the last 10 to 15 years is it has kind of like stopped people from having proper online sensible discussions. And there is this kind of like mentality in certain, you know, generations that I'm right, you're wrong, and I will shout until you, you know, I go away and my opinion will not change. There's no kind of like intelligent discourse in some places of the internet. And I thought that opening scene was a brilliant summary of that. And it just like, it, it's that brilliant, broad, satirical approach that, you know, Russell T. Davis did like very much in series one, Aliens of London with the whole like um, weapons of mass destruction that he was. Per- um, parodying the whole, like, uh, Iraq, um, like, uh, invasion and the argument to go to war. And he did that with, uh, obviously, in, you know, in Aliens of London, World War Three, and he's done it brilliantly in this episode as well. Absolutely. And the whole online thing, it makes people think that they have to have an opinion about everything as well. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, they can't see something and not not kind of put their two penneth online. Yeah. I think um, that Prime Minister was definitely supposed to be a Boris type character wasn't he because he was sort of like a like a rather rotund english person with a very posh accent so i think that was boris rather than sunak but yeah yeah the messy hair so much well. information now about every episode because i mean isn't it wonderful we've got vam again we've got uh commentaries we've got uh behind the scenes stuff it's just feels like being young again it's marvelous but uh there's so much, it's hard to remember who said what about what, but somebody said that the all the different accents were supposed to be a reference to the original toy maker's cultural appropriation, so he, he was, like, culturally appropriating different accents, or have I dreamt that? It's Russell T. Davies on Unleashed, I think. He was, um, yeah, he was uh, saying the, uh, the, the theory that Celestial was meant, was intended in the original story, as a as a derogatory term for Chinese people. Well, I think yeah. the jury's out. The jury's out on it, but there is a school of thought that says that was intended. But um, I, there's been a couple of good things I've read this week that suggests, you know, looking at the original paperwork for it, that that it, that, you know, it doesn't quite fit like that. That uh, you know, the, the way it was written and then the way that the costumes were came about don't it, it doesn't quite mesh together, but. Uh, I suppose it, we we don't really know. I mean, even even the infamous use of a certain word wasn't actually in the script, was it? That was sort of like an ad lib from one of the actors. Yeah, that's no, true. which I very much doubt will be in the animation. <laughs> there was, I think, there was a Doctor Who essay that's been published somewhere that basically said that you know Michael Goff played the role in Yellowface when oh. that purely isn't the case because you know we've got a lot of color photographs from this production. You know, and he's not in any makeup or whatsoever. So, yeah, I, I get. Obviously, you may find like a white actor being dressed as an Oriental, um, an Oriental Oriental garb, and might be seen as like kind of like you know culturally insensitive in this day and age. But I, I, the whole thing about the celestial being a, a derogatory term that mm. was uh, completely new to me. 
And then Russell's kind of like argument for it was like, oh, I think he's kind of like, he's not doing himself any favours. He's kind of like not explaining it properly. And he's kind of like backing himself into that corner that he did when he tried to give the explanation for redoing Davros. Um, but, you know, if you're going to then say, well, you know, we can't do that character as he was betrayed, and then you'd let either, because I, well, I presume it was written that way, because we saw um, extracts of the script and Neil Patrick Harris said that he had to learn it because it was written in a cod German accent. Are we not offending German people by doing that? You know, it's kind of like you can't have one and, you, and then do the other because you kind of like either you don't do something or you kind of like, you know, it's... I've seen a lot of people online say that potentially well, it's a, probably a mistake for him to then do different actions there if you're trying to defend the character or reimagine the character because the character was originally supposed to be problematic. Greyhound to trap one. Greyhound to trap one. How do you read me? Over. I want to come back to the way the toy maker is disposed of later, but I want to talk about some of the other returning characters that we get. It was announced publicly that Bonnie Langford was returning, but I thought she was returning in the Shooty Gatwa season. I was not expecting to see her in this episode. And while she was not really integral to the plot and just sat in the chair for most of her limited screen time, she did get a pretty deep soap opera-style conversation with the Doctor, bringing us up to date on characters that teenage audience members would never have heard of. And also alluding to Mel's backstory and first meeting with the Doctor, which infamously we never got to see on television. How did you all enjoy seeing Bonnie Langford again? And how do you think she did with what on paper should have been a thankless part, just sitting there giving exposition? I thought it was brilliant to see her again. I loved it. I thought, uh, yeah, same. I didn't know she was in this, so it was a really lovely moment. Quite subtly done, the way she hands uh, the Doctor the, the, the iPad type thing. And then he sort of does a double take and sees her. And it's, uh, yeah, I thought that was a really, really lovely moment to, to see her back. Um, and yeah, that's, I think she delivered that exposition very well. There's sort of, uh, you know, there's a sort of smile on her face when she was talking about the seeing the stars and traveling and all the amazing stuff she'd done and the sort of warmth uh, that she spoke about Sablom Glitz with. Uh, which, yeah, it's nice that they they did sort of tie up her her backstory or refer to where the Doctor last saw her and she didn't just appear. So that was uh, that was all quite nice. Obviously, we knew she was back on Earth because she's in the support group in Power of the Doctor. So it's it's cool that we now found out uh, how she's she's back on Earth. Uh, she's because she was doing a uh, Dragon's Den she style was. game show, wasn't she in the in the season twenty four oh, yes. trailer? <laughs> So she's given up a lucrative TV career <laughs> to, uh, to to come back and work for Unit. I thought it was marvellous to see her back. She's got more uh, character um, like uh, in this like kind of like brief five minutes with the Doctor than what she ever did in the twenty episodes that she appeared in, <laughs> like in the eighties. Um, and she, you know she's unfairly like kind of like was used as a beating stick, wasn't she? with some detractors of, like, the John Nathan Turner era and towards the, the latter end of the 80s run. You know, I was like, oh, you know, it turned into a pantomime and all that kind of thing. And it's like, you know, she was hired for 
to be a screaming companion and you know it's it's not her fault that the material wasn't well written for her you know and she, and she has proved since that she's an absolute brilliant actress you know um, apparently you know I don't watch it anymore but apparently her run in EastEnders was absolutely fantastic you know so um it was really great to see her um even I like kind of like went oh you know look oh you know there's Mel um, and um, it's fantastic that she's going to be part of the show, and and I presume, um, you know, part of the 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 long rumored unit spin-off as we're kind of like getting all these returning characters, so that they can probably drop in or be like various kind of like a big ensemble cast for whenever that like gets announced or starts filming it, you know, um, that they'll they'll probably like send different companions off in different pairings for you know that week's episode to investigate uh you know something on behalf of unit i think that's uh how it's gonna go so it's it's just great to see her back brilliant if we get tegan and ace back as well in, in that kind of thing and donna potentially as well in a unit spin-off that'd be lovely do the good thing about having mel there as well is it's a companion that's seen a regeneration before as well so it's sort of uh it's nice that she's there for another regeneration. Apparently she had a really long speech about it, which they then cut because so, it was like holding up the action. But uh, I, I think it's know. just charming that a character wasn't particularly well loved and wasn't particularly given strong material and didn't do it particularly well, but is now sort of back in the show and is sort of like everybody's fabulously nostalgic about her. And it's just endearing how we all mellow with age and we can sort of like uh, take things to our bosom. To put on my pedantic hat, Mel did not witness the regeneration from Colin Baker into Sylvester McCoy. She was unconscious, and when she met him for the first time in the episode, she didn't know who he was. Well, I suppose, I mean, she was she was around to, to see the changeover, if not the actual... She, she was Kate O'Mara. <laughs> True. <laughs> Kate O'Mara. Oh, we then have the adventure in the Toymaker's realm, and we also get an on-screen acknowledgement that Elizabeth Sladen has passed away. There was a little bit of a tribute to Sarah Jane in there, which brought a lot of feels to the audience members. There were a lot of continuity references in this story in general. The word celestial was embedded into the script. There was a reference to Mavic Chen, speaking of 1960s villains who did wear yellow face so how did you guys like the fan service and the giggle? Because there was plenty of it. I had to spend every 45 seconds telling my kid, that's a continuity reference. That's a continuity reference. That's a continuity reference. As I always say, I'm a fan and I like to be serviced. So it was fine by me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like all that as well. And and I think with the scene between the 14th and 15th doctors doing that, it helps to embed that the 15th doctor is... You know, does have all those memories still? He hasn't got the the angst, but he's got the memories. He's still the same character, so I think it kind of served a plot purpose in that sense. And yeah. it's got a Russell T Davis thing as well. That in Russell T Davis, the Doctor can remember everything. So you know, like the first time around with the Tenth Doctor, he can remember. He makes a reference to the Ood sphere, doesn't he? Where uh, so it's sense sphere when he meets the Ood and different things, and then. Uh, Stephen Moffat's Doctor can't remember anything. Like he, he couldn't remember the Yeti on the underground. Uh, the Twelfth Doctor couldn't remember the events of the girl in the fireplace in Deep Breath and stuff. He's just like, no, he's so old he can't remember anything. <laughs> and Russell D. Davis has it. The Doctor can remember any everything that's ever happened to him. 
Going back to the to when they were in the Toymakers realm, and obviously you've got a lot of continuity there because the Toymakers telling Donna about uh, everything that's happened to the Doctor with his subsequent companions that he had after Donna left him. So that was that was a, a huge kind of like um, um, you know continuity info dump. Uh, there but you know and my 13 year old was kind of like leaned over to me and goes did that really happen I was like yes yes that happened you know because obviously he was like and that character died and then that (laughs) character died and I don't know whether or not um, Russell's having a a little bit of a dig at Moffat not quite able to kill off a character properly Well, if that's RTD's complaint, he has absolutely no business talking after the end of this episode. But that's a whole other, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I think it's to sell this idea that the doctor's uh, the doctor's kind of emotionally exhausted, isn't it? Um, that uh, that's that suddenly popped up. I think some of the best work that Neil Patrick Harris did in the episode, and it was a tour de force performance, but one of his best moments is. He keeps talking about all these past companions of the Doctor who died, and the Doctor gives some wacky sci-fi explanation for how, oh, they're not really dead. And the toy maker drops his German accent, and in a southern U.S. accent shouts out, well, that's all right then. And my kid was very impressed by the accents, because my kid did not know that Neil Patrick Harris was American, being only 13 years old and having never heard of him outside of my conversations. So she thought that was a great moment. I thought and that was a great moment. And a meme was born as well, because it is um, covered in it now, yeah. <laughs> Some of us, yeah. It's everywhere. It's spectacular, so yeah, it's been very amusing. I like the one about the spiders. <laughs> it's like, um, what was it like? Well, I shoved all the spiders in the cupboard and let them to starve. Well, that's all right. But <laughs> we didn't shoot them and set them in a cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess it's time to talk about the, well, before we talk about the bi-generation, the Doctor and Toymaker challenge each other to a series of games. Now, one of the complaints that classic series fans make about Celestial Toymaker is the games are not particularly (laughs) enthralling. The first that's another word for, for enthralling. Uh, the first 10 minutes of episode four is a game of hopscotch. Episode one is a game of what in the UK is called snakes and ladders, called shoots and ladders here. And there's a reference to snakes and ladders in the episode. Uh, some more fan service. In this episode, the games the toy maker plays involve cutting a deck of cards and seeing who draws the highest card and playing a game of catch. I don't know if RTD was trying to show that the Toymaker's idea of games is not particularly good or if he just wasn't feeling very creative that day. What did you guys think of the games the Toymaker played? I think the uh, the drama was the important bit rather than the actual game, wasn't it? It was like the interactions of the two of them. I think just trying to keep it simple to like emphasize how pointless the toy maker's existence is really it's like being entire life dedicated to games just basically put down to this simple action of like picking a card just shows what a shallow creature uh, he is and the doctor's contemporary muscle i suppose they kept the games simple so that they, the games that kids play as well or kids 
kids can play if they're playing Doctor in the playground or whatever to to emulate it. But I I think there could have been maybe more games of skill or or some game where the Doctor's intelligence kind of came through and and showed how he defeated the game. You know the uh, how he defeated the toy maker. You know, it's kind of a fairy tale type thing, isn't it? Where you, you know, uh, playing a game and and tricking somebody somehow. But uh, yeah, I think it it worked well enough. I don't really know why the doctor was doctors were passing the ball to each other. <laughs> um, it seemed like a, an unnecessary jeopardy uh, within the game. But uh, yeah, I thought it was it was fine. But it, it could have been more inventive. I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure not many kids uh, after the broadcast of the original. 66 episode we're playing the trilogic game in playgrounds <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably like best to keep it simple and, and i never thought of it that way as in you're doing something that again will be mimicked in the playground you know which is absolutely fantastic but i think they probably could have gone a bit more imaginative with it if this had been like a bit of a two-parter more than just limited to like the hour-long special you could have had them like forced into a video game realm, or and then you could have done them as eight bit characters. Uh, you know that could have been a cl- clever little sequence. You know, but perhaps it was the limitations of the budget. You know, I'm not saying the budget's low because you know it's obvious like a lot of money's been lavished on these episodes, and we can see that obviously that with what's on screen. But you know, perhaps like they could have done something a little bit like uh, more modern, more different, but. Perhaps, like you say, Russell's keeping it simple and think this is what's going to be mimicked by kids on that Monday morning in the playground. That's what they'll be doing. They'll be playing catch with the ball and pretending to be the doctor and the toy. I was going to suggest that maybe watching other people playing games isn't very entertaining. Then I remember there's about a billion videos on YouTube of people doing exactly that. So possibly for my generation, no, but uh, I think I improved very much wrong by reality. Celestial Time Maker was way ahead of its time in that sense, wasn't it? <laughs> he just wasn't live streaming on YouTube. Yeah, the original story is, I find, incredibly boring. So that was proof then. But as I say, history has proved me completely wrong in uh, like people watching gamers these days. Yeah, it did. Like you're saying, Jason, it did. I did think, especially watching it the second time there, it could have been a two-parter or a, or a much longer story. Because yeah, I suppose if it had been an old four-parter, you'd, you'd have had it the doctor and donna trying to make their way across london with all the kind of the chaos and the jeopardy there <laughs> done a lot cheaper <laughs> the, you know, the, yeah the, the you know the, then the sequence traveling back in time and going to the toy makers realm you could have had a full episode out of the attack on unit and everything and then the finale you could have there's yeah so much they could they could have uh, done with that it was uh so much great stuff packed into an hour or an hour and a minute. Somebody suggested it would look like the Keeper of Traka, but in reverse, like shooting to sort of being separated from the Doctor. Yeah. So let's come then to the idea of bi-generation. Traditionally, in a regeneration story, the Doctor regenerates in the closing moments, gets a couple of lines in his new body, and then cue the closing credits. This was... Unless you count the fake-out regeneration into the master in Power of the Doctor, this is the first time that there's a regeneration during the climax and the new Doctor is able to help resolve the crisis of the week. Except this time we're introduced to the idea of bi-generation. And the 14th Doctor splits into the 15th Doctor and Shooty Guy actually appears on screen for several minutes. And... I, this, 
I didn't get this on my one viewing, but other folks have pointed out that they actually split clothing. So the shooty gets the shoes, the the 10th doctor gets the pants, etc. Um, what did you guys think of this notion of having two doctors for the price of one and turning it into a stealth multi-doctor story? I just thought it's a very good idea that uh, all of Jodie's costumes regenerated with her because uh, she was in, her underwear had remained. It would look a very much uh, different regeneration. <laughs> but I think it's an attempt to do something different. I mean, they've done this, what, now 14 times, so they can't keep doing the same thing. I did wonder if maybe they were losing a little... Um, they wanted to get shooted there as quickly as possible, whether they were they're just anxious to get in there, like bringing in Colin Baker at the end of a season. They wanted to get shooting there as quickly. But I did think, wonder what Disney fans, like Disney viewers rather, have never seen it before, are making of all this. There is an argument to say maybe it should have just started with a new Doctor if it's going on to Disney for the first time, because all these, these three episodes should have been great for us. must have been unintelligible for somebody who's never watched it before. I mean, I don't care about them particularly. I've enjoyed watching what I've seen. But... Maybe it is to get shooty there so new viewers will get used to the idea of him being there so when they launch the new series, they can go, look, this is the bloke, that's where he's come from, we'll just start. From what I understand, internationally, Disney Plus haven't really promoted Doctor Who for the specials. They're saving it all for when the new series starts Which next makes year. sense, yeah. So I think the deal started that they're on Disney Plus. Obviously, there's a lot of existing fans, but I think their their really big promotion across Disney Plus starts with Shooty. That will be a new Doctor, meet the companion, uh, have an adventure. Well, I guess it's Christmas. It starts, doesn't it? That'll be when the uh, when the kind of the big push is. Well, that's tied into uh, what Denise said uh, on the Star Beast uh, podcast that we did. Uh, that she actually a- had to actively look for it because it wasn't being promoted on the main banners mm. at the top. Oh, yeah, so it looks like they'll be going full all-in, you know, once the shooty era starts properly on Christmas Day uh, because, obviously, Disney Plus gave away the uh, the title of the episode yeah. as well, didn't they, in their press release for ah. the BBC. Um, but um, I, I, I don't know. I, I get the idea of what Russell was trying to do, um, but it seems to be almost as if you're putting... If, are you putting David on the subs bench? And if Shooty's era doesn't kind of like take off, or if you want like a little boost at the season finale for his first season, you know, are we going to see? Well, I'll I'll bet my house on it now that we'll see probably the fourteenth Doctor turn up and have a bit of a a, a mini adventure in you know, the season finale of Shooty's first season. Um, you know, is, is are we kind of like parking the old series because of the nature of the deal with Bad Wolf and Disney Plus and that is the classic series and the new Who era, that's your BBC stuff and then are we now saying that with the 15th Doctor, that's now another incarnation and effectively a proper full reboot of the show because he's got a TARDIS. Obviously, he gets his prize with knocking the TARDIS into two TARDISes. Um, It was nice to have a different take on the regeneration and have them talk to each other. Um, 
But uh, I, I kind of like don't kind of like see the reasoning of why it was done beyond that as as a novelty. I don't think that we're ever probably hopefully not not get it again because it takes away the specialness of you know the new Doctor to have him kind of like overshadowed by the current Doctor and and vice versa. You know, it's kind of like that thing. He's either have one or the other. Yeah, bring them together for multi-Doctor stories or anniversaries or whatever, but is it doing Shooty a bit of a disservice by having David still there? I suppose, though, if you're saying this effect ends this era of the show and it's relaunching a new era of the show, it's quite a nice ending to have our Doctor ending on a happy ending, happy in a garden, and then the new Doctor going off to brand new adventures, isn't it? So putting it that way, I actually think it's rather sweet. Yeah, I can't wait for the 14th Doctor series spin-off where he watches Holmes under the hammer and goes for the Tesco big shot with Donna. You know, I think that's going to be absolutely... Uh, the thing is, though, we would actually watch it. Uh, that's the thing. <laughs> and then we'd do a podcast about it. So. Don't pretend we wouldn't. Then we'd buy the box, the big finished box set so, and the books. So we mock, but we would watch it. <laughs> I'm the same in that I did like having the two Doctors on screen together and that kind of handover. I really like that. And it has, I have thought, uh, as I think Russell Davies said, he had I thought that would be a nice thing to have. But I don't, I think the thing, you know, the whole thing, like you say, Keith, about, oh, well, you know, 14 gets a happy ending and all that kind of stuff. I don't really like the, it's not like he's 14 or the 14th Doctor. He's he's the Doctor. And I I, I like the, the idea and always have that it's just the same person all the way through with a different body yeah. and a different slightly different personality and accent and things like that and this idea that that they're more distinct than that I, I don't really like and I think it's something again it crept in a bit with Russell T Davis when when he replaced David Tennant with Christopher Eccleston in the Christmas Invasion you've got that like no I'm literally the same man because I'm trying to reassure the audience and then by the end of time he's going to Wilf, well, even if I regenerate, it's just like somebody else uh, standing up and walking off sort of thing. He's changed his mind again this time, though, hasn't he? Because he just said, oh, it's just a change. So, but I suppose it's just a, it's a multi-Doctor story. It's just a, it's a Doctor from the future rather than sort of like resurrecting Patrick Trout or something, isn't it? It's just, it's a different way of doing a multi-Doctor yeah, story for the 60th. Well, I think there's, um, there's some kind of vagueness, isn't there, about this? Because there's the line where the 15th doctor said, he says, I'm okay because you've taken the time to kind of heal yourself and rest, yeah. which suggests that the 14th doctor does that and then either just disappears or then changes into Shutigatwa somehow. Or the doctor's just completely bifurcated and you've got this other doctor that, you know, you can head cannon becomes the curator or whatever. That's a good idea. So I think some of the lines in it make me think that, yeah, this is just like a short-term thing. It's just like, it's a bit like The Watcher or something where the the future incarnation has arrived a bit early um, and we just haven't seen the 14th Doctor kind of do all that that kind of work and and, and self-help. But then that seems to be undercut by Russell T. Davis's in-vision commentary where he says when he thinks in his head, when this happened, all the previous Doctors also had a bio generation. And I guess that explains why, you know, the doctors look older in the, you know, the older doctors look older in 
multi-doctor stories in the past and it explains the sort of tales of the TARDIS where you've got uh you know the uh, the older versions of the classic doctors and things as well but then it that also doesn't make any sense does it because if they all just split off and they they didn't have the magic hammer to make separate tardises <laughs> and they the magic hammer they yeah. also um also if they'd then gone off and just rested then the 14th doctor wouldn't need all that because <laughs> he wouldn't need all that rest because he's done it every time he's regenerated so yeah, there's that line, isn't it? I think the 15th Doctor says, we're doing therapy, but we're doing it in reverse. Yeah, we're doing it out of order you know? or something, <laughs> yeah. But, and then, like you say, it, Russell's theory that he said on the commentary, that he's like, well, all the previous Doctors have now bi-generated as well. And does that tie into what the 7th Doctor says to Ace in the tale? Tales from the TARDIS, the Curse of Fenric one, where he says there's some like timelines where I regenerate and there's some timelines where I don't and I just live on. So is that a seventh Doctor who's from the bi-regeneration with the sixth Doctor? Is the sixth Doctor who appears in the Tales from the TARDIS a bi-regeneration from the fifth Doctor? And it's just like... You know, Doctor Who continuity is sometimes complicated <laughs> enough and we can't just wash it away with that was the time war or now we'll it's be the, the favourite one, that yep. was the toy maker. Yes, yeah. um, yeah, the jigsaw. <laughs> so um, as an idea of binary generation, as in it's a myth and because we've let the toy maker back into the universe and then there's going to be more kind of like, I think, like myths because we're getting goblins for the Christmas special. Is that kind of like the essence of the toy maker, like making its way into the Hooniverse? And that's why we've got the bi generation. But to then say it happens to them all as well, I, I don't like that explanation at yeah, all. Yeah, because the toy maker does say something like, my minions are coming or something like that, doesn't he? So it could mean that there's yeah. other sort of, uh, you know, kind of supernatural beings like that. When the Toymaker and the quote-unquote 14th Doctor, I'm still calling him 10, are playing games, they do a, they cut the deck of cards and whoever draws the highest card wins. So the 14th Doctor draws an 8. Perhaps he should have drawn a 10. Then if it was a Moffat episode, he would have. But the Toymaker then draws a king. Now, I've only seen the episode once and I didn't freeze frame. Was that supposed to be a drawing of Michael Goff and his Toymaker outfit on the King card? Because I thought that might have been a nice uh, stealth way of uh, getting a Michael Goff cameo in there. Well, I've seen the screenshot. It's it's doing the rounds. And some people are saying it looks like Neil Patrick Harris. But I actually think it looks like Matt Smith. And I'm thinking, oh, is that just like a clever little thing of like, you know, the picture cards are other incarnations of the Doctor. Is that like a little like, you know, kind of like Easter egg that in there, you know? So we're getting, like you said, uh, Jason, we're getting a multi-Doctor story, but by stealth, by having like little images or the odd clip, and then we're getting the 14th and the 15th Doctor having a little mini-adventure at the end. So we are getting a, a multi-Doctor story in the anniversary style, but just putting a different spin on it. And then as the toy maker is exiting, he does make that cryptic comments, as you said, about what's coming next. But there was a comment earlier when he was talking to the David Tennant doctor about how he saw 
and I forget the exact wording, he saw the one who waits, and he was scared of the one who waits, and he runs away, indicating there's another big bad out there who is almost certainly going to be the big bad for the coming Shooty Gatwa season. Any thoughts on that? Any ideas about what all this means? Yes, it could be the same, uh, the boss that, that the Meep mentioned, um, couldn't it? It could be the same kind of big bad as yes. that. Well, um, the toy maker references is defeated the guardians of time and space. So do we think that's the black and white guardian there out the picture? Yeah, he says he's defeated the Eternals and defeated the guardians. Mm. So I presume that takes them out of the picture unless they want to then have revenge against the toy maker and also then this universe. Yeah. But um, I've seen it banded about that potentially. The, the mention from... Um, the 15th Doctor, you know, when he, he starts reeling off the things that they've done, you know, we defeated the gods of Ragnarok. So that's a name drop mm. there. Is it going to be them? Or is it potentially going to be, you know, somebody like Fenric that they're alluding to? When Shooty was first interviewed, didn't he sort of like mention the devil? And then he sort of mentioned something from folklore, didn't he? So I wondered if that was what he was alluding to. Because it seemed a fairly specific thing for him to mention on an interview like that, didn't he? It's like from the, even from the very start. So I just wondered if that was just like a hint as well. It's quite interesting. I thought the toy maker said he defeated God as well. That's that feels like something that you wouldn't have got in Doctor Who for a long time. <laughs> that uh, your buddy's just saying like, "Oh yeah, killed God." <laughs> Well-known atheist um, Russell T Davies though as well, isn't it? So. <laughs> yeah, but but God is canonically real in the Hooniverse. So. <laughs> Or was. Now, is he a big white man with a beard or is he Alanis Morissette? That's yeah. what I want to know. <laughs> I like thinking of it as the, There's a deep the Monty Python one. The, uh, the beard. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last 14 minutes of the episode was a lot of what I call Russell T. Daviesing characters sitting around statically and expressing their emotions for one another. So you had the uh, backyard barbecue scene at the temple house where a mad Auntie Mel shows up and everyone is assigned a role in the doctor's life. There was the off screen voice of what is meant to be Wilf. So Wilf is still alive in this universe, even though he evidently passed away in between the production of wild blue yonder and the giggle and was no longer available to be in this episode where he was supposed to have been. So Wilf is there around the margins of this episode, even if not in vision. You also have the nice little effect of the jukebox in the 15th Doctor's TARDIS. And now the 15th Doctor will go off and will find his own companion in three weeks for the Christmas special. There was a moment when we're alone with the 15th Doctor in the TARDIS and a strange expression comes across his face. Now, this is part of the visual language of television that I'm trying to teach to my kid over the years Whenever a secondary character is left alone with the camera, it usually means the writer is trying to tell you something. We thought the toy maker was dispatched a little too easily, and we thought there might be some twist in the last 10-15 minutes of the episode. So when the TARDIS and Shooty Gatwar are alone on camera, I thought there was going to be some pullback and some reveal this is not really the Doctor and this is the toy maker in disguise. I thought we were going to have a whole secondary climax, but no, in fact, that was not the case. Were you guys hoping for more out of the last 15 minutes after Neil Patrick Harris departs, or did you think that it just hit all the right emotional buttons and sets us up nicely for the Christmas special? 
I don't think I was expecting any more from the toy maker or anything. Obviously, we get the nice little hint where the hand picks up the gold tooth that the master is trapped in. Uh, so I suppose that's the kind of the the hint about what what is to come in the future um, in terms of future threats and things. But I I did I think it's good it was really right that it ended on the fifteenth Doctor because that's the continuation of the show. So I'm pleased the last shot was of him in the TARDIS. I really like his theme tune. I thought that was oh god yeah was, amazing. It's been in my head all day. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's so kind of upbeat and it, it just sort of speaks of of adventure and everything like that. I thought he was going to look to camera. I felt like that that was going to get a sort of like a Tom Baker or Peter Capaldi sort of moment where he sort of smiled at the camera or something. I thought felt like that would have been a, a really nice last last shot, like last frame of the episode before the credits came in. Well, thankfully, it didn't go on as long as the uh, the closing moments at the end of time. So <laughs> <laughs> that was a relief. <laughs> but yeah, I I I I liked the little coda at the end. Obviously, you know, with the fourteenth Doctor and he's he's built some force fields for the moles <laughs> stop Wolf from shooting them, you know, and he's like, kind of like, he's taking his time, but he's already done two sneaky trips in the TARDIS that uh, get revealed that he's, he's taken Rose to Mars and he's taken Mel to uh, New York. So I don't think he's going to be sitting around that much, um, you know, like watching daytime TV, like I said earlier. Um, but yeah, it is quite right that it ends on, um, Shooty, uh, I thought we might have actually got a costume reveal. Like we might have, like suddenly, like just like you know, walked down one of the corridors, and then you know he's got the long brown leather coat that he's gonna. I think probably gonna be the kind of like the main costume because he seems to be wearing a different costume in every kind of like um, shooting photo that has been leaked uh, online. Uh, but yeah, it's it's right. Destination Christmas. There you go, boom into the trailer at the end of the episode, and you know, roll on Christmas Day. Hopefully, we'll get to see the TARDIS wardrobe again if he's going to have a different costume every week. I think I'm in no particular rush for him to change. With the amount of budget that the show now has, they can give Shooty his own full-time costume coordinator. <laughs> and also, apart from Matt Smith, I would venture to say that Shooty Gatwa is in better physical shape and is more of a physical specimen than any other actor who's ever played the role. <clears throat> Matt Smith was designed to be playing the old man of the young man's body, so he masked his physique with tweedy, baggy clothes. But with Shooty, they're not going in that direction. They're giving him a form-fitting, physique-revealing outfit every time out. To that end, most of the people in my fan circle which is primarily on Facebook these days, were so happy with pantsless shooty that I think most of them would rather this be his costume for the rest of the series, walking around in no pants. <laughs> yeah, I could live with that. I think you're talking about the how, how, what good physical shape he's in. I think when um, when Tennant first arrives in the Toymaker's shop in 1925 and he kind of leaps over that counter, I was trying to work out whether that was him or a stunt or whatever, but he's in like 55 now or something and I, I don't think I could uh, I could leap that counter in a single bound like he does it was very impressive for uh, for Tennant to do that he's 52 52, 52 is it alright <laughs> he's a year older than me <laughs> 
Well, you know, we're, we're sharks. For the moment, with my hip, bloody hell. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what character options do uh, with the first shooting Gatwa action figure, whether or not he's going to be fully clothed or whether he's going to be in a regeneration set with uh, the 14th, which is, is rumoured. Uh, are they going to go for him, like, um, you know, in his first costume, or are they going to actually have <laughs> shooty there in his box of shorts? <laughs> As an action figure, Keith would appreciate that. I would, yes, I'd buy that in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> Any last comments about this episode? Any elements of the giggle that we have not discussed yet? The Vlinks, I quite like the Vlinks, uh, the new addition to the unit family. Uh, it's got quite um, quite a sort of Star Wars character look, I thought, um, which which struck me in the. Destination Scar or kind of mini sword as well that the the sets looked a bit like um, you know the prison cells on the Death Star or something. It felt like it had that that kind of aesthetic. I only noticed this time it's voiced by Nick Briggs, which um, it doesn't doesn't sound like him in the way that some on Big Finish or you know, some aliens you can you can detect his voice in it. Uh, so yeah, I thought that was a, that was a cool addition, and uh, I'm interested to sort of find out more about that character either in the next series or in the rumoured unit spin-off series. Yeah, because they don't mention anything, do they? I thought for sure that Vidinx was going to be a red herring because normally when a new character is introduced as a character who's always been there and everyone already knows who he is, usually that's a tell that he's going to be a villain. I was expecting, again, I was expecting a rug pull with regard to that robot as well the same way that I was expecting a rug pull with regard to the 15th Doctor alone in the TARDIS at the end. Maybe that'll be revealed later on, but I thought they were setting us up for something with the Vidinx that hasn't happened yet. Maybe it'll happen in 2024. It was ambiguous as to whether the Doctor already knew that race or that, that type of robot, I thought. Um, he doesn't uh, doesn't doesn't really give it away. Um, I thought that, that whole unit set as well sort of reminded me a bit of in in the Supergirl TV series, she works for the is it Department of Alien Affairs or something like that. Uh, just kind of vaguely reminded me of the the set of their kind of headquarters as well. Expensive set. There's no way that is not coming back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Same with the uh, the helipad as well. Obviously, because we've got unit towers uh. <laughs> <laughs> like the Avengers Tower, slap bang in the middle of London. <laughs> so uh, yeah. That that's going to be a standing set uh, at Bad Wolf Studios, mm. isn't it? The uh, master, the gold tooth, and the audacity of repeating exactly the same shots <laughs> with a uh, hand with red nails picking it up again, and having all the masters <laughs> laughing at the same time. I thought that was marvelous. So uh, only Russell D. Davis would have the the hotspur to like literally repeat himself like that <laughs> to do it on purpose. No, that was I love that. I thought that was uh, very cheeky. And obviously, we've already got theories of who the hand is as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the theory that I like the best about the hand is that is Jinx Monsoon's character coming in the first Judy Gatwa season. And that makes sense, given it was, you know, exaggerated nails. But again, it could be anything. And uh, there's already quizzes. Is it the Ronnie? Is it Susan? It's Susan. (laughs) (laughs) Ronnie. (laughs) Well, that's a point for predictions because. you know, Callan Ford was actually at the um, the launch, wasn't she? So she was the only person there not to have been on um, Tales of the Tardis or something. So that sort of fed the rumours that she was going to be 
in one of these specials, and that turned out not to be true. So that was one prediction that didn't come to pass. Right. Yeah, same with Karen Gillan. I think she appeared at London Comic Con at the weekend of uh, the Star Beast, and she she said something to she was saying something to people, and this leaked on Twitter. Oh, uh, look out for next weekend because I'm in something that you you'll all appreciate. And obviously, everybody thought she's going to be in Wild Blue Yonder with Matt Smith, but it turned out she was in that week's uh, new Simpsons episode that debuted in the US. Right. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> Obviously, she didn't say exactly what it was because of, like, you know, they signed NDAs and all that yeah. kind of stuff. That's brilliant. So we have a special guest joining us right now live for this special trap wine breakdown of The Giggle. It is my 13-year-old Callie. Callie is now going to take the headset, and she is going to give us a contrarian take on the relationship between the 14th Doctor and Donna Noble. Callie, take it away. So I think that uh, the 14th Doctor treats Donna pretty terribly, especially in one of the first scenes where they go back to the toy store. Donna is trying to help the doctor where he just pushes her away, just completely ignores her. And this happens a couple times during the specials. And in the end, they do go together. Like, they do end up eating dinner together and stuff, but he does treat her pretty terribly. That's a good point. So, uh, yeah, yeah. would you want to see more of the 14th Doctor in Doctor Who, or are you finished with him? No, I'm, I'm good. I'm good with the 14th Doctor, but I'd want to see more of Donna. All right. Thank you, Callie. Yeah, Thanks, Callie was making those comments live as we were watching the episodes, and she had actually been watching Wild Blue Yonder over my shoulder. So when the 14th Doctor loses Donna in the Toymaker's realm, she shouted out loud, Oh, no, not again. They did this last week. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Now she it's is coming to this with no baggage. She didn't watch the Tenth Doctor's era live because she wasn't born for all of it. Yeah. <laughs> she wasn't born until the, the Matt Smith era. So she doesn't. She doesn't have this lovely. Everyone loves David Tennant. Yeah. She's coming into this cold, and she is not impressed with him at all. Put it that way. That's a good point. So about that, they get separated both times. Yeah. Yeah. You, she says that obviously he doesn't treat her very well because he keeps trying to dismiss her and. Then, I'm sure there's a line in, in um, The Giggle where she says to him, you know, you forget, I remember now. And almost it's if the 14th Doctor hasn't quite come to grasp with the concept that she's now got all the memories back and she's got the memories of the Doctor Donna back and she's effectively like her character is, is back to how it you know, was at the end of the uh, journey's end. You know, so she can like comment on stuff like that, but he's obviously still treating her as if you know prior to that, and she's got her, her memory swipe. So uh, I'd have to rewatch the episode again, but I'm sure there's a line in there where Donna tells him that you forget that I, I I've remembered everything. But well spotted of your daughter for uh, picking that up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Callie also appeared giving a longer form review of the giggle on the most recent episode of Doctor Who Literature, The Myth Makers, also co-starring Cy Hart. Uh, who's another Trap One host. So if you want to hear more of Callie's opinions on the new series, Doctor Who Literature is one of the places to go. Look forward to listening to that one. And where, starting with Keith, can we find all of you fine fellows online? What else are you doing now in terms of new projects or other things you might want to signpost us to? Absolutely nothing. Next. (laughs) (laughs) 
I am obviously uh, on the dying embers of Twitter. I still refuse to download the latest app update for it to turn into X. And, uh, you know, I think I'm kind of like losing the good fight of staying on there, but I'm on Twitter as DjangoMac72. And also on Bearded Geek Toy Reviews, the YouTube channel, uh, we're edging closer to a 1,000 subscribers. So if anybody wants to subscribe to the channel, then uh, please, you know, uh, take me above that 1,000 subscriber mark um, by the end of the year. That would be absolutely fantastic. Um, I've got a video coming up, uh, which is Doctor Who related. I've done a lot of Doctor Who related ones that I did around the running up to the anniversary where I reviewed the history of the show, but along with the uh, character options uh, action figures um, that they've released so far. And I've got two Sylvester McCoy TV movie figures, um, and I want to do quite a complicated head swap on them, which is going to involve cutting the heads in half because character options have never done a serious hatted Sylvester McCoy figure. And I thought for a TV movie doctor... He never really smiled watching that episode, so I'm going to have to cut part of the head off and then substitute it with the other part of the head with the hat. And so I'm going to do a video on that, and that'll probably be up uh, if I don't cut my fingers off. (laughs) (laughs) Live head surgery on YouTube. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not doing it as a live stream. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) Uh, you can find me on, on Twitter and on Blue Sky as Quark McMalice, and you can hear me on Maximum Power, which is a trap one and flight through entirety co-production, where we're currently talking about Series C of Blake 7. I think we're about halfway through that at the moment, so uh, check that out if you're a Blake 7 fan. And I did give my sort of comical intro to this episode comparing what Elon Musk is doing to Twitter, what the Toymaker did to the Doctor Who universe, but the reinstatement of Alex Jones onto Twitter is just absolutely the worst news story of the year for me, and that's got a lot of competition because of what Alex Jones has done and his $1.5 billion liability in court for defaming the families of the murdered Sandy Hook children. So I am giving it time for people to transition to following me over to whatever's next, but I am deleting my Twitter on December 31st, and I will not be there anymore. Um, so I am currently on Blue Sky. Blue Sky? Huh. That's unfortunate. Blue Sky, as some folks like to call it. Folks who call it by the right name. I am on Blue Sky and Mastodon as the same user, uh, Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels. And I'm also on Gmail, Dr. Who Literature, Doctor Who Literature at Gmail. You can find me in all of those places, as well as on the Trap One podcast from time to time. All three of these fine folks are going to be on Doctor Who Literature again very, very soon. Keith has his debut episode coming up within the next few months. So please look out for that. Keith has given me a surprise look. As if we didn't talk about <laughs> oh, yes, yes, ago. I do. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I signed the contract with a cat look, yes. <laughs> so you can join most of us on Trap One next week as we discuss in an episode recorded before the specials aired the tales from the TARDIS minisodes featuring many returning doctors and companions 
we had a lively discussion of that, I believe, in early November, and that is finally going to be released. Although I made one completely incorrect prediction and reference to Doctor Who companions who have appeared on Trap 1, and that line had to be deleted because of subsequent developments. <laughs> But that should be the very next episode of Trap One to be released after this one. You can find all episodes of the Trap One podcast at trapone.podbean.com. Thank you for listening, and have a great night. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye.